happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 174 for April the 22nd, 2020. My name is Wes Fryer, and I am not coming to you from Banff. Actually, I wish, I don't know, it, this is a better virtual background than I've had before, but my, my head sort of, you know, appears and disappears. But anyway, coming to you from Oklahoma City, where we do not have mountains, but we have had tornadoes in the state. And it's been an exciting evening, kind of our first uh, tornado night of the of the April season. Oftentimes, the first week of April is the real exciting uh, time for us. Um, and I am the technology integration and innovation specialist. I always have to think about that because, you know, it's easier to just say tech director, but I'm a recovering tech director and a, and a technology fear therapist at the Cassidy School here in Oklahoma City, where we are in week four of remote learning. And joining me, as always, with, I think, a better virtual setup than I've got. And he's sporting a Windows PC, so that really hurts me to say. It's Dr. Jason Neifer from Missoula, Montana, where I guess the state will be opening for business as usual, you know, within a few days. Is that rumor correct? Yeah, we've got a couple of uh, articles related to this tonight, but uh, our governor, uh, Governor Steve Bullock, announced today that uh, we're going to start phase one on Monday. Uh, I guess it would be April 27th and uh, a new category of businesses, which include restaurants, bars, casinos, bowling alleys, uh, those sorts of businesses will be able to open on Monday. There are some restrictions regarding that. Things like uh, you have to, in, you can have half the number of people that, that your space is designed for. You have to keep tables six feet apart, uh, that sort of thing. But it appears that our state uh, will be reopening. Um, and then also uh, stay-at-home orders for schools end on May 11th. And at that point, uh, Montana, which is infamously a or famously or infamously, you be the judge, uh, a local control state, they're going to give the power to school boards to decide whether or not they will hold school in session for the rest of the year. And I would also note that uh, they will continue to fund schools either way. So there's no financial pressure, at least for schools, to uh, rejoin. So, um more about that, I would imagine, a little later. Um, I do not work in a face-to-face uh, -face school. I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Mont. Well, actually, usually located on the fabulous University of Montana campus in the Phyllis J. Washington College of Education. And um, I did have the opportunity to go to campus yesterday. I had pretty pretty rough Tuesday yesterday. I was feeling a little uh, rough at the end of the day. My wife suggested that I get in the car and go drive around for a little while because I hadn't been out like physically out of my home for three weeks at that point. So she suggested that I, I leave the premises, which I did. I uh, rolled down all the windows. It was a beautiful 66-degree day in Missoula yesterday, and I ended up spotting an uninhabited part of the University of Montana campus and walked around there for about 10 minutes. So very, very, very wonderful opportunity for me to be, um, you know, uh, socially distant and yet outside. But this is not a show about social distance, nor Dr. West Fryer's mustache. This is a show about tech news. And it just so happens we got a ton of links tonight, uh, www.edtechsr.com to find uh, those links, whether we talk about them tonight, there's usually great gems of information located uh, in there. Uh, Dr. Fryer, where would you like to start us off this evening? Oh, well, let's just do some positive tech news. Uh, Gizmodo, April 22nd, Tab Groups is Chrome's best new feature in years, and here's how to use it. I think Lee talked about it for the first time last week. I have not played with it yet, uh, but, you know, some fast, fantastic news. Dealing with Chrome with with tabs is a huge issue. I mean, I frequently I'm helping teachers now remotely, right? Because we're just connecting to people's houses who have an incredible number of tabs open. And I'm always, you know, sharing tab suspender, which can help, you know, with memory and things like that. But you have played with uh, the the tab, the Chrome tab, haven't you? I mean, this I have. Yeah, I've played it. I've played with it both on mobile and I've also played with it now on desktop. And I, to be clear, 
I do not believe this is uh, natively turned on yet. You have to go in and tweak the Chrome flag oh, to yeah. have the the grab or the the tab uh, 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 grouping function to turn on. So far, so good though. Um, I I would agree, Wes, that if you are uh, a primarily a web user or if you're on a Chromebook, uh, being able to be a good kind of like tab ranger, I think, is a really important part of productivity. Um, most of the folks I know that are great online do end up having shocking numbers of tabs open. And I'm looking at you, Mike Agustinelli, my partner in crime, the Digital Academy, who but is... we try to get on the show sometimes. We do. We absolutely do. And he can uh, talk about his uh, shocking addiction to tabs, particularly on his desktops at work. But um, that what it allows you to do is essentially group together tabs and you know, both name them and color code them. And the feature I've loved the most so far about it is that, uh, and not a lot of people do this in general, but you may know that you can take a tab, um, put your mouse on it, click down, and pull it out of the tab group, right? That allows you to tear it off is what I would say, tear tear. it off. Yeah, tear it off. Well, you can do that with a whole group of tabs. So you can take the tabbed or the grouped tabs, which you've named and added a color fixture to, and pull the whole group or tear the whole group off, and then also take those and apply them as a whole group as well. And it adds an interesting new nuance and way to organize tabs. And if you, like me, like Wes, like Mike, like almost almost all power users I know are pretty tab-heavy users, it does add a, a, a new nuanced version of control to allow you to kind of wrangle more tabs at once. Pretty great. So we, we mentioned this last week, uh, but I'm, I'm mentioning it because, you know, even though you mentioned something, it doesn't mean you're going to make time to play with it. And, you know, article, and, and of course, headlines, they're always trying to get our attention. But, you know, this really does make, I think, a strong and persuasive case of why this is a, an important uh, feature and it's definitely worth worth checking out and playing with. So that's on my homework list for this week. Where do we go next, Dr. Neifer? Well, let's talk about a couple of other evolutions of tools, uh, maybe ones that you're using on a daily basis with remote teaching, uh, so prolific in the United States. Um, WhatsApp, which is a uh, not necessarily as popular in the United States as it is in other places around the world, but it's kind of an alternative to texting that doesn't require access to a texting network or an SMS network. Uh, it's announced new features that allow you to do group video chatting. Before you could do one-to-one -one video chat on WhatsApp, but now I think you can have up to eight users in a group video chat using the WhatsApp app. And one of the things that's really interesting about that is that, uh, especially it's been my experience that folks that, that travel worldwide will oftentimes WhatsApp as opposed to Facebook Messenger or other kinds of messaging available because in certain areas around the world, it's very, 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 very aggressively used as an alternative to SMS texting. But to have that functionality means if you're not quite comfortable with Zoom or Zoom's too much, or if you already have friends or family that's in WhatsApp, then you can do video conferencing there without uh, much ado. And actually, I have my, my wife's family is is in WhatsApp because uh, my brother-in-law, who does quite a bit of, of solo traveling around the world, uses WhatsApp. So if you're looking for an alternative to Zoom, uh, that is a great one. And then one other quick one, we mentioned last week that there's a plugin and an extension you can download on Chrome that allows you to put uh, 16 people up at once in Google Meet, which is the video conferencing tool baked into the Google suite for education, that is now a native functionality. So you can turn on multiple people on your screen at once, which mimics a very popular uh, uh, feature of the Zoom platform. So you can either use the plugin that we talked about last week or rolling out now is this functionality in Google Meets. So I would comment on that because, uh, you know, like like a lot of folks, I'm in a bunch of video conferences now. Every once in a while, a Zoom conference, mostly either a GoToMeeting conference or a, uh, a Google Hangout Meet. Um, this is saying that it'll just support up to 16, and that compares to Zoom, which um, can handle a lot more. Actually, I was thinking in that article it talked about just how many more it did. Maybe that was, there was an, that was article. I was another article that I read about that, but anyway, zoom has a much more robust. I mean, it's more like 40 or 50 or something like that. Folks that you can see um, one big limitation that we found to go to meeting. And I'm surprised because we were evidently, this has been an issue that people have complained about at least since 2012 is that on the iPad version, you can only see like the first 
four or six, maybe it's four users, and then you can't see anyone else. So for us with teaching uh, teachers, it's important that teachers connect first and anybody who's going to be presenting connects first. Anyway, because you that doesn't change. And in, in most other products, even the, the regular GoToMeeting desktop you know, app, it'll have an active screen where it'll always show you whoever the active presenter is. So, you know, yes, video conferencing is video conferencing, but it's not quite like email is email. And that wasn't even true either, right? Google has had threaded, you know, responses for a long time and different differentiators. But there are good improvements that are being made to Hangouts Meet. We'll do another shout out to the wonderful Eric Kurtz, whose series on Hangout Meets is probably the best one for educators in terms of these different features and staying on top of these things. Um, but I'm glad to see that rolling out as a native uh, feature. And I'll say that I have been using for my live meetings with fifth and sixth graders Hangout Meets, and I'm using it from Google Classroom because when you and your students click the auto-generated Hangouts Meet link in Google Classroom, that only becomes active when the teacher enters the room. And as long as the students leave, then, you know, it's go then it's going to go away. Um, they can end up being persistent, you know, otherwise when you create them. So good to see the continued improvements and kudos to the developers. Not sure who they are, but the folks who had created that grid view extension, that was fantastic. And, um, it's, uh, good to see that continuing to improve. Where are you finding yourself video conferencing the most? Jason has actually disappeared now and became, he has become the eye of Sauron in a white dot version. I'm hoping that that is not because I have lost connectivity. I will open up my Google Wi-Fi app here and try and give myself priority because sometimes in the evenings that is an issue. And if you happen to be in our chat room, which I see that we do have a live viewer right now, uh, I would love to know if you are continuing to hear the stream and see everything. So hopefully that is the case and Dr. Neifer is going to rejoin us. So, hey, he's back. Sorry, I need to jump away for just a second. So, yes. Okay, no worries. Where to next? All right. Uh, let's see. Why don't we, well, let's just stay in that category. So our categories, sometimes we'll say these at the top, are tech tool evolution, which we just got a couple uh Articles from Humans Move Everything Online, Intelligent Personal Assistance, Connectivity, Hardware, Security, Creators, Influencers, COVID-19, Media Literacy, Disinformation, and then Chrome, Microsoft, Miscellaneous. And that's where I think I'll pick up uh, a couple other articles. So this was USA Today on March 30th. And I I missed this. I don't know. Maybe this isn't too significant. But Microsoft has renamed Office 365 as Microsoft 365 and um, has new Word and Excel features and is, you know, continuing to produce some innovation. So I think that's kind of interesting. Um, I did, I don't know, I think it was a video. I've read, I'm, I'm impressed with what Microsoft has been doing, right? They are really truly innovating and doing some shifting. Uh, so yeah, as of April 21st, so as of yesterday, Office 365 is Microsoft 365. Um, how dependent are you guys still on on Office, Jason, are you I would almost, almost none? We're we're primarily a Google Apps shop. I mean, I do like. I will say that the fact that you can sign into Office.com and uh, with with a Google account and be able to access the web version of Excel and PowerPoint and um, uh, uh, Word uh, has been very useful um, to to me personally. In that, I think the uh, in the last couple of years the um, uh, the Google Apps uh, conversion of, of Office documents has become much smoother and, and much better. But with the number of people that, that I work with, and since we support students in 200 plus schools across the state, there's a variety of approaches to things like document compatibility. I still like to be able to open things up in, in native Office apps. But uh, that that's really what I use that primarily for, that because I were a Google Apps institution. But that said, I'm not surprised that Microsoft's kind of heading in that direction in my mind. And I think you kind of saw a sense of this when uh, Sanjay Nadella took over at Microsoft. Uh, there was the famous time when he actually asked someone to hand him his iPad when he was demonstrating a new uh, Microsoft Office feature. This was two or three years ago, and everyone was stunned that there was even an iPad in the room and that, more importantly, the CEO of Microsoft had the iPad. But this notion that it's cloud-first and that it's it's 
free, which is what I would put in quotation marks, on the web-based version and the mobile version, and that if you want the more uh, robust desktop apps, then you're starting to pay money for that, I think it's been a largely successful strategy for them because a lot of schools have jumped back aboard. And, you know, you can uh, – Windows is basically free, right? You – uh, uh, it comes free with, with, with a computer. Obviously, if you buy a, a, a Microsoft based PC, uh, you can update an old version. I think you can still do that for free using an old serial number. And then Office is free-ish, not unlike Google Apps is free if you go to a Google account. I think it's been a smart rebranding and a smart redirection for them. And there's no doubt that they've reemerged in K-12 education. Well, I mean, that's such a huge difference from the, the Bill Gates days or the, or the Steve Ballmer days, you know, where at some point I think you were prohibited as an employee from, you know, or, or maybe it was just strongly discouraged, but, you know, iPhones and iPads, it was, it was just not what you were supposed to be, you know, carrying around. So interesting to see, to see that shift. And then one more article that's under that category, and then we can just scratch that one off our list. This is really interesting. Ars Technica on April 21st. Here's why baking damaged reel-to-reel tapes renders them playable again. And why the heck am I interested in this? Well, when I was with my parents, I guess, uh, this is a few months ago, right, obviously before all this uh, COVID-19 stuff, uh, somehow we ran, they, they had run across a small reel-to-reel tape that in like 1972, my, my dad was sending back and forth to his mom in Powell, Wyoming, and they would record letters to each other and send them back. And it has multiple recordings. Anyway, this is in our kitchen, uh, sitting, you know, in our bill drawer. And it's one of those things where I, I, I need to find a player because this would be a really cool thing, whether it's my dad talking in 1972, but hopefully, you know, my grandmother, uh, his mom, who was born in 1903 in Scottsbluff, Nebraska, um, that would be just super awesome. And so what happens with reel-to-reel tapes as they degrade is there's evidently some emulsion that comes out. And what the, there's actually, they actually did a presentation, um, at, at a chemist conference or, or some kind of, you know, academic conference. And they said 130 degrees is the sweet spot. But what that does is it reabsorbs the emulsion. And if that, if that tape is not playable, it makes it playable again. You have to play it quickly uh, because it will degrade again. But you're talking about DIY folks using hair dryers and toasters and, you know, other other kinds of techniques. But uh, how I would just kind of bring that back to an ed tech lens is, you know, thinking about where we have our things stored, right? Uh, I don't know if you still have uh, floppy disks and zip disks, you know, somewhere in a garage. I, I actually wrote a blog post for fun last night, and I was reflecting on mixtapes because I've been enjoying Spotify so much, and Spotify playlists are just amazing. And I couldn't find, actually, my one of my mixtapes in my garage. It's in some box. But, like, I have tons of, like, tapes and, and old, you know, video eight tapes and and. My, we tried the camera this last semester. It didn't work. So, like, anyway, the, I may have orphaned media that I have no way of actually, you know, bringing to life again. So, anyway, think about that. Uh, and a shout-out to Oral History Projects, you know. Uh, I think we're still going to be sheltering in place a little bit longer, even though Oklahoma, as of Friday, is supposed to spin up hair salons and movie theaters and sports venues, which just doesn't sound like a great plan. So, anyway, uh it's a it's a great time to uh, do some oral history with your family and whatever you are creating and have media wise. Think about what is going to be on and if that if that's going to stand the test of time. Absolutely. And I would give one other piece of advice because I actually had a friend that was looking for for a zip reader the other day for zip disk. The that would be what circa 1999 ish, give or take, maybe a little bit earlier. Um and he uh, eventually found the, the first the first uh, drive he found was actually a parallel port one. And there's just not parallel ports anymore on Windows PCs anymore. So he eventually found a USB one. But uh, don't um, don't uh, wait to convert stuff after media starts to die. Right. Because the longer you, you go, the less likely these are going to be able to find something compatible to move it to. And I would say that I know that there are some people still a little leery about putting things onto the cloud, but cloud storage is so cheap. And although the, the file format could theoretically stop working, you should be able to keep stuff in the cloud forever, right? That where is, is where uh, uh, things should ultimately go. And, um, you know, if you have old VHS tapes, if you have old Betamax tapes, if you have outdated formats uh, uh, of media around, now is the time to do that if it's stuff that's precious to you and you want to save it forever. 
There was something that came up in Google not that long ago that they had moved files and there was some kind of, it seems like it was an archive or some some kind of status. I'm not seeing that right now in my consumer uh, Google Drive account. But, I mean, you do need to also make sure you log in. And I was, I think I almost lost my, my Dropbox account uh, for school. Not that I really use it, but... Anyways, it is it is it can be important to continue to log in, and these things don't just get orphaned and and deleted. So, and you got to pay for stuff, right? If you've registered domains, uh, I have gigabytes upon gigabytes of stuff now on Amazon S3. And you know, if I was to let that credit card or debit card or whatever expire, and uh, you know, not pay that bill, that'd be a bad thing. So, lots of things to think about. Absolutely. Okay, let's see. Where shall we go next? Creators, influencers. Do you mind picking up those? Sure. Articles? Yeah. Uh, two interesting articles. The first one is that uh, One Zero reports on April 12th that although there is a massive increase in um, YouTube uh, traffic, right, which is not surprising because I am a big YouTube guy, uh, a consumer of YouTube, and I've certainly increased the amount that I have watched. I've seen the number in that article is that there's been a 15% increase in YouTube traffic. I've seen another article that's just as closer to 30% increase in YouTube traffic. Whatever it is, it's a double-digit increase, so a lot more eyeballs with a lot more minutes of video. Despite that, creators are reporting back that they are making less money on YouTube videos than they were six weeks ago, um, not because of any shenanigans on the part of Google um, uh, or YouTube. It's because less advertisers are advertising. And I think that's an – go ahead. And it's also the kid thing, right? So if you would be creating videos that might be viewed by, by kids, uh, meaning I think folks under age 13 rather than age – Right, yeah, the demonetized. No yeah, that's no longer monetized. But that's right. interesting. So you're saying advertisers have actually, you know, reduced their spend. Right. Yeah. And, you know, um, and I would imagine that advertising rates have probably actually gone down because of a lack of demand. Right. We are um, in a world economic event, whether uh, we understand that the the long term implication of what COVID-19 will do to the worldwide economy. We we don't really really know a sense of that, maybe um, for, for months, but potentially even years, the full impact of that. But a number of large brands that had been. Uh, very aggressively advertising on YouTube have stopped advertising, which means that advertising revenue goes down. And so one of the things that's interesting about that is that uh, we are so globally independent economically, whether we like it or not, that's a function of the 25-year movement towards globalization. But even the YouTube economy, or maybe you could even say the broader internet economy, has is not recession-proof. And there, there's no uh, recession that actually has a specific economic definition, which we have not met yet. But with the massive increase in employment in the last six weeks and clearly a uh, some kind of worldwide economic event that is is unfolding before our very eyes, that's going to be one of the impacts of this. It's not like you can shelter in a creator position and expect similar revenues as you did before. So uh, we have not monetized the index situation room in any way, shape, or form. So it will not impact our day, our weekly news to you, the people, our listeners. But that is an interesting thing to talk about. And uh, so keep in mind and then there's a great article that is actually a repeat of, of something we've talked about dozens of times before uh, on this channel and in our podcast, which is related to YouTube and the kind of uh, edging people's attitudes towards more um, edgy political views. And uh, this one is the most recent article I've seen on it. It gives a pretty good um, inter- it's an interview with with an expert on how to avoid being kind of radicalized in your views by watching YouTube. And there was one piece of information that, that really caught my eye when I read this article, which is that um well, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, turning off automatic next play videos, which is an important uh, uh, classroom strategy, right? If you're using YouTube in the classroom, you need to do everything you can to not have recommended videos pop up because that will turn into a class rabbit hole like almost nothing else, right? But that functionality where the suggestion engine sends you new videos to look at um uh, is part of this radicalization, right? And, you know, and I would say that, that it's obviously politics is the focus here and that's very real, but, you know, it, 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 
it's really everything, right? Like you can go down some really interesting rabbit holes. I've been watching a lot of baking videos lately because I've been trying to up my game on bread baking at home. And I'm not saying I've become a radical radicalized baker by any stretch of the imagination, but you start watching a video or two on sourdough, uh, which is more controversial than one might uh, actually assume at, at, at first blush. But then you start to get videos that start, you know, encouraging you to make your own sourdough and, and, and maybe to go in the direction of, of, of ignoring things like safety in regards to making of bread. So something to keep in mind. And Wes, I know you are a huge proponent of, of digital citizenship and digital literacy as part of a classroom environment. How would you approach this topic with kids? I, you know, part, part of it is with advertising and thinking about people hacking our brains and how, you know, how media seeks to influence us. Uh, but it's also about trust and how do we determine what it is that we're going to believe. And, you know, we're generally sitting down at lunch to, uh, now with, with uh, both our daughters, our college, college daughter and our, uh, 10th grade daughter. Um, and we think actually, uh, not to take a big, detour, but I think our son is going to be moving home with us in about three months or three weeks, which is exciting. Anyway, it's so interesting to hear them ask questions and talk about like, where did you hear this? Because we're talking about different things related to COVID-19 and, and whatever. So it's, you know, how how do you decide what you're going to trust? What voices, what channels, um, you know, because just because we've seen it on the internet or just, you know, just because, uh, you know, if that if that YouTube influencer said that, I mean, who else is saying it? How do we verify? You know, can we read laterally? Um, you know, I had something on Facebook the other day, and I think we've got some perhaps some articles under media literacy. Maybe we can segue to. But, uh, you know, is anybody else saying this? We've got different quote unquote news sites that in, in some cases are specifically focused on emotional responses, trying to push people's buttons, pull levers, get folks fired up and excited. And it's like, wait a minute, have you read this anywhere else? Is there any mainstream media source, let's say, you know, linked by Google News that is, is actually carrying this article? Well, if there's not, then perhaps we should be hesitant in in believing this and then also in sharing it and making, you know, that, that kind of sharing choice. I would say that if you go back <clears throat> and look in our, our archives, this is episode 174. <clears throat> we have referenced in the past, <clears throat> I'm going to cough and have to take a drink here. Um, we've referenced some great podcasts that talk about radicalization and um, it's, it, this is a real thing. I don't think it's the kind of thing where we should all be panicked and, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons convinced that every, you know, you know, teenage person, whether, you know, boy or girl, whatever is, is just in mortal danger because, you know, they're, they have this potential, but it is a real thing. And there's different ways that that takes form. I've mentioned before on the show, I think that I'm convinced our 16 year old has been subjected to more. The moon landings were false videos and and perspective her generation than any previous generation ever because the things that are outliers that push the boundaries those are the things that in some cases tend to attract more eyeballs and so youtube pushes you in that direction so i appreciate you sharing that article i'm definitely going to check it out i have considered doing a parent university session or offering a parent university session at school on radicalization because this takes some several different forms. It can be with, uh, with racism and it could be with sexism. It can also be, um, with a very, um, you know, extremist. And I, I hesitate to even use the word religion, right? Because folks that espouse terrorism in the name of Islam, I, I don't think are actually, I, I don't know. It's just people are thrown all together in one big, one big, uh, sort of, you know, hamper or whatever. And it's like, okay, these, these folks are not, you know, the, uh, they, they obviously give, give the whole, uh, religion a bad name in, in similar ways that there are folks that call themselves Christians and, you know, have bombed abortion clinics and, you know, done, done all kinds of violent, terrible things. So radicalization is a real thing. We need to be aware of the voices that we are listening to, that our, our children and our students are listening to. We've got to talk. It's dynamic, man. This stuff happens fast. And it is, I don't know if this is a greater divide than it has been in the past, but I know there's oftentimes a very large divide 
between the media personalities, and I'm thinking specifically of YouTube, that teenagers, but also preteens, are watching and know and trust, and then parents, teachers, adults who are like, who is that? Who are you talking about? There's this this wide gulf, which because we didn't all have screens in our pockets that we could take to our, our bedrooms or whatever you know place we wanted to go in, in our house or outside, it was our access to screens was radically different in prior generations. And so I, I would hypoth- I would um, say without evidence that, you know, there's there's a wider gap today than ever before. And the, and the media environment is certainly more fractured between adults and, and children and students in terms of who are you watching? Who do you believe? Who are you even talking about? And so I think that is something we need to be talking about at the dinner table and in the classroom and just connecting about because, you know, not just who is it, what are they saying? And do we believe that? And what kind, because it's, there's all kinds of messages that, you know, YouTube influencers are, are trying to share. Have right. you, what do you think of the radicalization and I don't know, do, do any of those, those podcasts come to mind? Cause I know we've referenced some of those in the past, um, that have kind of done some deep dives into sort of that world of, uh, I'll, I'll have to go back and search and find it. Sure. One, one of them that was about uh, a Canadian who actually got recruited to join ISIS in Syria, you know, and then was returned. But his, his pathway there was very much tied to content he found on YouTube and then, you know, groups that he connected with and, you know, the spiral happened. Right. I think there's been a reply all episode from Gimlet Media that, that has dealt with this issue in kind of their, um, you know, light, but, you know, re- research rigor, uh, uh, re- research based rigorous way. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the ways that if you need any evidence of this really is go, I, and I, I hesitate to give this advice because, uh, it, it, it does require being, uh, it's a little bit sneaky, but go into Facebook sometime and go to a radical group. Uh, search around for a while and you'll be able to find one that you disagree with, right? Like some uh, group of people that you don't really find uh, much to agree with. And I, again, without tipping my hand about maybe groups that I would put in that category, uh, you'll find that a lot of times this is true of the super left as much as it is the super right that, um, that will uh, start citing sources that pretty clearly and plainly are, are well out of the mainstream. And of course, I think part of the problem with that is, is that your excellent advice, Wes, which is to look for confirmation for things in mainstream media sources, that part of the radicalization process has been to uh, 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 reject the, the so-called mainstream media uh, in, in favor of these sources that tell you the truth, as opposed to, you know, mainstream media, whether you write it off as corporate or too conservative or too liberal, doesn't really matter uh, either way when it comes to the fact that there's there's edgy groups in both directions here, but it will show you that we do need more savvy. And I just keep going back to this is the part that I can't wrap, can't can't really wrap my brain around. Um, you can't let kids onto a search engine to look for stuff before giving them the tools to evaluate what they're looking at, right? Like I can I even begin to tell you the number of times that I've been in in you know respectful but um I guess for lack of a better way of putting it contentious uh pedagogical discussions with fellow social studies teachers, you know, you can't you don't need to teach content anymore because the Google exists and gives you access to X Y and Z. I could not disagree with that more. And I don't think it's content based. And in fact, a good social studies classroom, good humanities classroom, a good history classroom has as much skill development and practice as it is content that you're disseminating or uh, uh, trying to give a framework for for kids. But historical events have wildly different sources available, even on mainstream digital sources that can paint uh, a picture one way or the other. There has been a concerted effort to diminish uh, the influence of Thomas Jefferson on American history. And I don't think it's a left or right view to say that Thomas Jefferson is one of the most important Americans that has ever existed, right? He was critical in creating what I consider to be the, the, the American intellectual mind, right? Which would include things like rigorous evaluation of sources, I might add. TJ would have been all over, uh, having you double check your, your sources, but, 
um, you know, that that's something that, that I think is really important to remember and understand. Internet search is not an information gathering exercise. It is a critical thinking exercise. And if you are not preparing your students with tools to do that, then you're shirking your responsibility. Like you do owe it to your students and frankly to democracy to uh, help students understand that it's just not good enough anymore to take the top 10 responses to, you know, whether you talk about Google or Bing or um, DuckDuckGo, or if you're kicking it old school and you, you found a web crawler, uh, you, you gotta, you gotta evaluate that. You have to uh, uh, take a look at what's available. Absolutely. I would love for you to come preach that sermon. Um, so this is a great segue to our media literacy and disinformation category tonight. Uh, first article, CNN, April 19th. Beware of these fake text messages and robocalls going around about the coronavirus. So we've got text messages pretending to be from government agencies saying you came into contact with somebody with COVID-19. Click here to get information. We've got fake inf- uh, fake messages from um, you know, folks talking about the stimulus and financial relief, um, all kinds of things. Uh, and, and all of these are trying to get you to click a link, right? So this is called phishing, phishing with pH, and it's the hook. That's what people are trying to do is to hook you in. And when you click that link, you know, there's all kinds of things that could happen. Uh, that could end up plant, you know, putting a cookie into your information footprint and and therefore you're going to start to see certain things or you know the worst scenario is it's something that compromises your device and probably most listeners here are not going to be the subject of a spear phishing campaign like Jeff Bezos has been uh there was an article i think we probably talked about this a while back <clears throat> about the the king of Saudi Arabia who apparently was targeting Bezos specifically and you know, was the source of this link that ended up in his, his, uh, smartphone, you know, being compromised. I mean, it's that, that is scary. We, I don't think we want everyone to be so scared that we don't click links anymore. But when you get a random text message or you see something weird on Facebook, I mean, just as we're all t- taking risks when we go out of our homes today, if you go to a restaurant, if you go to a grocery store, like it's a risk with, with the, with the, the new coronavirus and COVID-19 being, being about, being around, right? We're going to take precautions. Like when you're clicking links in anything, it is a risk. And so we really need to trust the source. And even if you trust that person, right, their account can get hacked. I'm sure most of us have probably seen something on Facebook or Twitter where it's like, you know, I don't think that person is actually sharing that ad or that link uh, because their their account has been compromised. So be aware of the fact that this is proliferating. Um, next article is, man, talk about... And this is going to touch on some some politics here. New York Times, April 2nd, touting virus cure, simple country doctor becomes a right wing star. If you remember our chief executive in his daily briefings touting, you know, this malaria uh, cure and, and this, you know, approach to trying to treat coronavirus, where did that come from? Um, well, I mean, this country doctor put out a YouTube video that was directly to President Trump and ended up being amplified. <clears throat> and then, you know, his his claim is like, this is wartime. We, we don't have time for trials. We've just got to take action. But, you know, science and medicine, there are obligations just, just as like, so Jason and I both have these things called doctorates, right? <clears throat> One of the things that I think you, you kind of get hammered into your head going through any kind of doctoral program is, Look at the act, look at the research. Don't just take on face value when someone says research says, you know, or science says, look at the study, look at what, you know, was involved and is it legitimate? Because that gets bantered around a lot. One of my favorite sort of mainstream uh, books about that is called Technopoly by Neil Postman. And he talks about why we tend to worship science and we worship charts and graphs and we need to think critically and not just accept on face value. Oh, of course, it was research. There were five people in the study, but, you know, I'm going to accept that as valid. So uh, this is a fascinating article about how that came to be. And then to segue to today, I want to commend 
the uh, latest daily podcast from the New York Times from April 22nd. And the title is Who's Organizing the Lockdown Protests? And so you've probably heard about these protests and like, whoa, these are really sophisticated, all these angry people. Well, in this podcast, the journalists have tracked down um, some of the same conservative sources who funded the Tea Party movement, who 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 really might not be that concerned about, you know, so and so's salon or or so and so, you know, going back to work. It's it's tapping into anger. It's targeting Democratic governors, and it's really a political play <clears throat> because some of the lawyers involved in the firms are working for the Trump campaign, <clears throat> and they are tied directly to the White House. And we of course heard. The president, you know, basically through Twitter, you know, incite, liberate these states. And so we've got this this fighting going on. But this is very important in terms of who, like, follow the money. Where is the funding coming for these things? Where are the voices? And what is presented publicly as, oh, this is for democracy. Like some of these folks are saying it's it's the new Rosa Parks, you know, stand up for freedom. Um it is so important that we have strong journalism. And this is one of the things that I think we need to advocate for. And, and, and I know we have to walk, depending on our situation, some thin or maybe narrow political lines, um, as we often do on this show. I mean, we're not, we're not a political show, uh, at school. You know, we're, we're very aware of the fact that political issues are polarizing and, you know, our teachers should not be just promoting their political views and inculcating, you know, kids with those. I think that we can, we can support <clears throat> the idea, hopefully, of a free and independent press and the importance of journalism. I mean, I lived in Mexico <clears throat> for a year from 92 to 93. I can tell you that, you know, at that time and even today, I think press freedom in Mexico it's it's just or go to Egypt. I was in Egypt two years ago, right? It's really hard to be a, a journalist in Egypt today, and we just need to support journalists and good journalism, uh, both financially and you know through advocacy. And so I think there's a whole lot here to those issues. So right. Matt, you want to you want to take on Dr. Knight? Yeah, I just want to mention that uh, that it's a great article that that you're citing there from the New York Times and the the drug that's most frequently talked about here. And I'm not even sure if I could. Uh, it's hydroequalacoctobsomething.com.net. But the that drug is also very popularly used with lupus. And I happen to have both a friends and former students that are uh, 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 that have lupus, and uh, uh, I've, I've been following one on social media who says that her doctors uh, 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 told her to cut her um, uh, her dosage in half because they expected a shortage uh, to come up on it because they were going to use it for um, a potential cure or potential uh, mitigation drug for COVID-19. And as it turns out, the most recent research on this, and it hasn't been published yet, although early results were released, says it has no impact on COVID-19. And in fact, uh, the statistics suggest an increased death rate when you utilize this drug as an attempt to push this back. Um, but you know, that's, it is a rejection of mainstream science to say that people should be uh, uh, utilizing this drug, even on an experimental pur uh, purpose on yourself. And in fact, uh, uh, another article uh, a couple weeks ago talked about how some doctors in some states were actually writing prescriptions for their family, which also made the drug rare in some states when there was a proven use for the treatment of autoimmune diseases like lupus that uh, suddenly that that drug has become extremely rare. And I'll tell you, I, I this is I, my my health issues are separate. I am a kidney transplant recipient. I take immunosuppressant drugs. One of the three drugs I use in my drug cocktail uh, is becoming scarcer now, not because of, of uh, subscription, subscription and prescriptions uh, related to COVID-19, but because um, the supply chain was disrupted and there was an existing shortage of this drug. And, you know, there is an ecosystem here, right? There's not an unlimited number of really any prescription drug, but in particular things like um, immune suppressant drugs, uh, specialized category drugs, uh, which um, I think is important. So, yeah, we, we can't abandon science and we can't abandon a scientific method, which is literally a thousand years in the making. Right. Scientific method is not new by any stretch of the imagination. And it's led us 
well to this point. It's led us to having the most advanced um, uh, uh, healthcare strategy set in the history of humans. Let's not abandon it now. And something I want to mention, and if anybody listening has got some suggestions on this, just on a real personal note, you've, we've mentioned on the show, and you've probably heard, that when somebody shares an article that, like, Snopes debunks or is like, no, that's not true, that it doesn't necessarily help to just immediately give that link to them and say, hey, that's wrong. You don't necessarily change their opinion because they right. are very strong in that opinion. Um, when it comes to COVID-19 and to go back to that CNN article that's talking about these text messages, I had a situation two weeks ago, I guess, <clears throat> where a friend had received a, a text message that was letting her know that she had come into contact with someone that had COVID-19. Well, maybe this is part of my four years as tech director, seeing all these phishing messages, all the, you know, media literacy, all this. I mean, my first response was, wait a minute, is that legitimate? Um, it might be false. There are a lot, and it turns out that this was legitimate. She was actually with someone who had that and has now been recovering. <clears throat> but there are so many emotions, probably even more so today, emotions tied to this in terms of fear, in terms of just, you know, lots of anxiety and the ways in which you know, the reality of this, I, I don't know to what degree, you know, each of us have, have had the reality of this, but like <clears throat> I have had some experiences and I've read some things from, from people I, I know and trust, like there is no freaking way any of us want to get this thing. We just absolutely don't. I mean, we may be fortunate to, to have the genetics and biology and whatever, where we're, we're not going to be strongly affected. Um, but that's, that's no guarantee. And so, Anyway, I think it's it's really a delicate balance when <clears throat> we have, and I'm going to try to temper my own response for this. I, I I think I need to be a little less strong on the. Wait a minute, is that even true? That needs to be part of what we're doing, but I think we need to be sensitive to where people are and the emotions that are tied in with this. And so, anyway, all of this is to say. Media literacy, it's important, and we need to continue to encourage critical thinking. The last article in that uh, subsection is from the New York Times, also on April 14th, and it says, the news is making people anxious. You'll never believe what they're reading instead. And I think this is fantastic. This is saying that, you know, Instagram accounts like uh, Tanks Good News, the Good News underscore movement, uh, the News Network for Good News, um, those are all on the rise. Uh, it says that Google searches for good news have spiked. And, you know, continued to rise. Upworthy, which is founded in 2012, uh, is a, has a commitment to positive storytelling, um, you know, and, and Facebook had adjusted algorithms back back several years ago that it hurt them. So this is important, too. What are we choosing to put into our media diet? What are we going to as like a dashboard? Uh, I remember my grandmother in Lubbock, Texas, bless her heart, who just left CNN on all day long. And, you know, whatever news it would be, if you have that on all day long, that, that takes a toll. So I think it's positive to hear about the uptick that these uh, positive news channels are having. And I would just challenge everybody to think about filtering your feeds, uh, limit the amount of time you are ingesting any kind of mainstream media and social media. And, and like, you know, like everybody else, or I don't know if it's like everybody else, but I find myself falling into the trap, right? I mean, I've got my iPad and I'm just, I'm being sucked in and it, there's a powerful draw that these tools and tablets and, and smartphones have for us. And we need to make sure that we are not ingesting an unhealthy amount or quantity of, of media. And that also we're attending to the messages there and um, just, you know, being intentional about it and, and not being sheep that are being led to wherever somebody else wants to lead us. Right. And I would say, you know, it, it's, it's, it, you can be very nuanced about it, right? Like as an example, one of the strategies that I've taken upon is that, I mean, I, I, I want to be clear. I'm, I'm, course reading a lot of news uh, from mainstream news sources, sometimes more than I should. But I try to not do that in favor of finding in-depth journalism that can walk me through more than just the headline, which oftentimes focuses on the gloom and doom. So as an example of this, I wouldn't say that I'm actively worried about the food supply, for example, but 
I have a pretty strict diet. The diet would not be very uh, useful in a world where I had to rely on cheap staple foods like beans and rice. Actually, I could be up fine on the beans. It's the rice part that would be problematic for me. I eat, generally speaking, a very low carbohydrate, global car, low carbohydrate diet that is rich in protein um, and also in vegetables. And that could theoretically be thinner in a uh, in, in a food shortage situation. Um, I'm, I'm not sitting around worried about that, but the articles that, that have appeared in mainstream news sources oftentimes make some pretty scary claims without talking about the specifics. And so I've instead looked at uh, podcasts, uh, mainstream media podcasts, mostly from uh, public radio sources because I think they generally do the best job at providing uh, excellent pieces of information. I posted a link over the weekend to a recent episode of Freakonomics, uh, which dove into the supply chain issues regarding foods. And it wasn't a rosy picture, right? There are some real issues that could pop up, especially if this ends up lasting 18 to 24 months as opposed to three to four months. But it was very reassuring that food economists are on it and that they're talking about it, they're thinking about it. And, you know, we're trying to figure out a way to make our otherwise extremely efficient uh, a food chain, uh, a corporate uh, dominated food chain, uh, more uh, uh, friendly towards a less restaurant purchasing scenario and more towards a home food purchasing scenario. And um, that, that's that been comforting to me. Yes, it was an hour long investment instead of a two minute investment on reading, you know, a quick hit New York Times article, but that's my strategy. And I think having some thoughts about how you're going to access news and media, because there are so many sources available, I think is a smart strat. I would love for you to uh, maybe take those connectivity articles or one or two of those that you did, but I will mention one last connected article about positive news. This one is under our COVID-19 title, and it's a video, Global 3D Printing Efforts to Create COVID-19 PPE, which is Personal Protective Equipment. Uh, it's about two, two and a half minutes long. Amazingly, it has less than 200 views, but it is so inspiring to see folks around the world responding uh, because these you know, designs for 3D printed masks that are, you know, beyond what we can just do with like a sewing machine and cloth in terms of preventing the transmission of the coronavirus uh, are, are out there. Uh, there's also a tweet, and I'll give a shout out to Vinny Vrotny out of the Kincaid School um, from, uh, well, I think of one of his teachers, Jeff Dietrich, Mr. Dietrich on Twitter. And uh, his tweet is, I am 3D printing uh, face shield bands with the Gigabot on behalf of Kincaid School for a nonprofit here in Houston that is crowdsourcing 3D prints to help in the fight against coronavirus. And literally thousands of these masks are being delivered to local hospitals and, you know, medical professionals in need. I mean, this is fantastic. And it's really in just an awesome, you know, maker education, the DIY. We, we've talked about like, you know, is 3D printing going to be this revolution in micro manufacturing? Hey, folks, it is for folks who have them now. You know, you can't necessarily spin up and get your 3D printer going now if you don't have one. But for schools and for individuals and organizations that have these things, man, it is fantastic. This is a tangible thing. I mean, creating a, 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 a respirator, not a respirator, but uh, what's that called when you have to have a breathing unit uh, in the hospital? My brain is starting to fail me here at the end of the show. Uh, uh, ventilator. Ventilator. Thank you. Um, one of the one of the shows that I listened to, actually, this was the No Dumb Questions, which is another fantastic podcast. Uh, I mean, they, they were talking about this design had like seventeen, or no, sorry, seven hundred parts. Uh, but it was very inspiring. I think I mentioned it last week about how you know the the General Motors supply chain folks have been unleashed on this thing and they're going after it. Um, that may not be a, an achievable thing with your three D printer to be able to contribute to, but these masks are and yay, isn't, isn't that great? And so amidst these other headlines about, you know, protests in these different places and other kinds of things that can drag us down, let's remember some of these good news items and let's think about sharing them, right? Because we all, if, if we're on social media, we're connected to other people, you know, we have opportunities to, uh, to be journalists and to engage in acts of journalism. And so thinking thoughtfully about the things we want to share and how those, will not only influence our our minds, but the minds of others is valuable. Um, so, Dr. Neifer, what about this connectivity stuff? This is an issue? What do you mean? I thought everybody had, you know, 
Google Fiber Giganet, Giganet, Gigabit connectivity. Isn't that what everybody in Montana has? Everybody's. Oh, oh yeah, we're all over the gigabit for everyone here in Montana. Um, so three articles that I think are an interesting juxtaposition. The first two are probably more important than the third one. But first one, great blog post from the New America Foundation on April 20th. It says, here's an interesting piece of information. We don't actually know much about how many teachers actually have broadband uh, uh, connectivity. And the article does go through some uh, uh, factoids. There's very little actual research, either by survey or by more deeper quantitative study about whether or not teachers have access to broadband at home. To be frank, I had never really thought about this either in the last six weeks as so many schools have moved to remote teaching. But they suppose because of the um, relatively low pay for K-12 teachers compared to other professions, that there is a decent chance that there is a serious number of teachers that don't have broadband internet at home. And there are all sorts of interesting factoids in the article, uh, lots of references to other articles that I think are worth your time if you're interested in connectivity issues. But one of the things it talks about is how relatively few data sources there are for the cost of home broadband internet. So I guess, Wes, Here's an interesting factoid. Um, I am on cable internet. I am in Missoula, Montana. The population of our, of our uh, rough census area is about 100,000, 110 or 20, depending on how you look at it. I spend $59.99 a month for 100 down, 10 up, fairly consistent cable internet. What do you pay for internet? We are on the, have been on the third fastest tier. Uh, paying about a little over a hundred dollars a month for 300 down and 30 up. I just last night put in for the, the gigablast tier, which will theoretically give us a gig down, but only 35 up and still a cap of a terabit per month, which supposedly they're ignoring. Oh. But that we're almost at that, you know, with four remote learners here. Yeah. And so, yeah, th this is super important. And as I was doing the research, like, what are they doing for for teachers? Not a lot. I mean, if you qualify for free and reduced lunch as a student, uh, Cox, who's our who's our cable modem provider, um, AT and T is also you know one of the options. You can get their low tier for free, I think, uh, for a little while. And so they're doing some things, but, you know, what we're needing to be doing with video conferencing and multiple people in the house requires a robust connection and then also robust Wi-Fi. Yep. So that doesn't, that sounds like a fairly reasonable price though for, for a hundred down. And, and you said 20, 20 up? Uh, 10 up, but uh, both those are fairly consistent numbers, which is the, uh, I know there are some parts of town that do utilize our cable provider here that do not have as consistent of numbers as I do. But, you know, again, and I think it's reasonable for 100 down and 30 up, uh, I'm sorry, for uh, 300 down and 30 up, uh, $400 a month. But the fact that there's not a lot of universal information available about what people pay for Internet, you know, that's that's there's been a lot of discussion in the last six weeks about whether or not I mean, people toss around the words like it's a human right to have Internet. That's a little tough in a country that doesn't provide health care, in my humble opinion. But at the same time. Um, it, it should be treated like utility. It should be easy. It should be well regulated. And there should be efforts to make it as universal as possible uh, to be able to access and maintain a critical connection to. But let me take that up one step further, that there's a really great article from Business Insider on April 9th that said that the unequal access to the Internet might actually hamper the re economic recovery. Right. We're still not really sure what the full scope of the economic doom gloom that we're probably headed towards uh, is likely to do. But as America gets back to work and ultimately as we try to rebuild the economy to its former strength, um, the article uh, here suggests that people that don't have access to the Internet, rural Americans is a, uh, a very uh, large percentage of those that lack any consistent access to the Internet. Um, uh, uh, urban populations, especially those of lower socioeconomic status, also do not have uh, access to broadband nearly as much as suburban residents do uh, in, in a lot of places around the United States. 
The bottom line is, is that the recovery will be unequal because of that. And so there's probably a thousand things that I hope we do talk about post-COVID, uh, uh, many of them related to education, but I really hope that broadband internet is absolutely one of them because I still don't think it's available universally enough to say that we are a net-connected country. Absolutely. Well, as much as I regret to say this, because there's a lot more articles that we could be talking about, we are at the top of the hour. So, Dr. Knifer, is there anything else article-wise you would like to make sure you get in here before we geek of the week it and bail out for another week? Uh, no other than, um, and we'll push all these security articles to next week. Uh, it is a, it is a dangerous time on the internet. It's probably always a dangerous time on the internet, but, uh, we've talked about numerous times in the past, things like password managers, unique passwords, two-factor authentication. Please keep security at the forefront of your thinking, even though I know there's a lot to talk about. One of the things, and you're saying this, and I'm listening to this to, to tell myself if you have not changed every single password you use to be something unique and also hopefully something long and complex, hey, this is the time to do it. Make an appointment for yourself, put in 10 minutes in your in your calendar, and then spend that time changing passwords. And you can use a Google tool that they've got now for password manager. If you're using LastPass, 1Password, these, these tools have those kinds of of Watchtower. They're called different things. So yes, good, good exhortation there. How about your geeks of the week, sir? Or I think you have one and it might have to do with food. Is that right? It does. Um, I, I've been a longtime baker and my pr preferred method of baking is I make a really mean pizza. Um, it, it, it actually researched in the country of Italy and it started off as pretty bad, uh, 15, 16 years ago. And right now I would like to argue that I am a a very high level home chef when it comes to pizza, but I have worked on baking other items in part because um, baking is fun and it's interesting. And it's also a little scientific, which uh, kind of scratches the uh, science itch that, that sometimes my brain does. But if you are interested in learning more about baking, I'm about to take on sourdough, by the way, uh, at the behest of uh, some friends of mine who are also prolific bakers and think that I need to start uh, kind of moving towards the sourdough revolution. If you want to bake bread, right, which actually sounds very intimidating, especially when you start to research, you may have heard of no-knead loaves, which require no kneading at all. You just literally mix ingredients together, you toss them around a little bit, um, and then there's some strategies you can utilize to bake that in the oven to create kind of a country loaf, uh, an Italian-style country loaf, but crispy on the outside, soft and delicious in the middle, takes only four ingredients to be able to do that. And there's a kind of a, a no screw up recipe that I've kind of gone to for that. It's from a great website uh, and YouTube channel called Jenny Can Cook. And Jenny uh, has a no need loaf recipe that has never failed me yet. Um, it, it creates delicious bread every single time. You will need yeast, which is in shortages in some locations, although it's my understanding that yeast has returned to most store shelves. A uh, great uh, starting recipe that requires almost no real skill as a baker. So there's a link in the show notes or the Jenny Ken Cook YouTube channel. Fantastic. I'm, uh, I may take you up on that. I actually did, did bake a, a loaf. We used to have a bread machine and then got rid of it in a fit of, you know, obviously insanity. Uh, but, I, but I did bake, uh, and I think eating is probably part of what's good about all that. So I'm going to suggest, Dr. Neifer, <clears throat> that after our lovely COVID-19 pandemic is over, we have a face-to-face -face gathering in which you bring the pizza, I will bring the brisket, and we will, you know, celebrate the end of the pandemic. I, I've got a portable portable smoker, and I can travel to Montana. So well, maybe you have prettier country than, than we perhaps do here. In <laughs> My geek of the week is, although we've got a beautiful state, everything but, you know, but uh, oceanfront property. Um, EdCamp Remote Learning, EdCamp RL 2020, happening this week, uh, happening mainly in Flipgrid, although I will admit to you that I have registered but not yet participated. So obviously a lot of things going on, but it reminds me of um, – Man, what was the name of that tool that was a, uh, like a walkie talkie audio? It was a Christmas a few years ago where somebody did an ed camp and they were just, we were, they were using that tool, which again, I'm, my brain fails me, I guess, at the end of the show. But, um, anyway, 
really neat opportunity to be able to make connections and be EdCamp style. And I actually put in a session for media literacy, so I probably better check and see if they want me to do something with that. Um, but then the other one is one of the best frontline specials I've seen in a long time. And this joins a long list of fantastic specials. This one is called China Undercover. And if you would like to understand why this whole competition over 5G is a serious deal, this is primarily about the oppression and really the cultural genocide of the Uyghur Muslim minority in Western China. <clears throat> I've had an opportunity to go to, to mainland China three times in Hong Kong once. And on one of those occasions, we were in Hangzhou, which is a small suburb of Shanghai of like, you know, 15 million or something. It's it's a big, it's a big place. But um, one of the folks that was there, we were we were at a an innovation in higher education and creativity conference, which was was absolutely fascinating because those aren't things that you tend to think of in the Chinese educational system. But anyway, one of the the uh, the. Uh, Folks from the United States who was there had been doing a lot of work, and that's the first time I heard about this. Folks, we need to not only know about this, I'm, I'm just going to say we need to be advocating for this. The fact that we have millions of people who are incarcerated in these, these re-education camps and denied basic human rights, it is horrific. The amount of fear that is there and the ways in which China, because sometimes we'll think it will, we, there's some awareness about the ways in which China is creating this surveillance state, but the, in the oppressive way that it is used to silence people and to inculcate fear and, and literally to genocide a culture. This is happening right now on our watch. And so go watch this show, okay? This is on PBS Frontline and it's called China uncovered. So with that little serious note, we want to tell you that we are the EdTech Situation Room. We come to you on Wednesday nights, generally at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, middle of the night in UTC. If you happen to be over there across the pond in England, we want to uh, encourage you to visit our show notes at edtechsr.com slash links. Follow us on Twitter at edtechsr. On our website, edtechsr.com, you will find 32 kilobit small MP3 audio versions that you can download to your device, a little smaller video versions, 360p, that if you want to download directly, you can, but you can also subscribe to us on YouTube. We love to hear from folks. Uh, we appreciate the live viewers that have been with us tonight. Um, no discussion in our chat room, which we sometimes have, and that is fantastic. But you can always reach out to either of us on Twitter. And Dr. Neifer, where could people find you when they're not listening to you on Wednesday night here? I am a tech savvy teacher on Twitter. I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, the Northwest uh, SD affiliate blog.ncc.org. And I'd like to invite everyone at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern tomorrow afternoon. I am the featured uh, presenter in live at NCC where I will be talking about uh, work at home strategies. I worked at home from 2010 to 2015. I know a lot about that. It's uh, not always uh, working in your PJs. And so I would like to talk a little bit about uh, some strategies for, uh, you know, sanely and, and, and concretely moving towards better work at home strategies. What about you, Dr. Fryer? I am W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog, speedofcreativity.org, is where I'm posting about once a week. But I'm sharing a lot more on our instructional support website for remote learning, and you can find that at support.cassidy.org. I facilitated a live webinar today on iPad tip tricks and tips. And also we had a great conversation with one of our parents and a local university distance learning expert who's made a series of videos for our faculty. Uh, we're doing something on Seesaw choice boards tomorrow. And we have a link on that site called Genius Bar. And you can see the archived live sessions that we're doing. And several of those are happening each week. So we want to thank everybody for joining us. Please come back, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcasts and let us know if you listen to the show. We love to hear from folks and hope that you find this information valuable. So until next time, stay savvy, stay safe, and go bake some bread, folks. It's time. It's time to bake bread. Good night.